have zero memory of the day itself. So I don't remember anything of that day, like waking up in the morning, like how we got over to the resort. I lost all memory for about three months after my accident. As she started kind of tumbling, I realized that it was going to be a much bigger deal and she was headed toward the wall on the left side at really rapid rate. Sally uh, was having some gurgling respirations, kind of the teeth were clenched. Uh, again, one of the things that you sometimes see with significant head injuries. I'm Rebecca Huntington and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero with support from the Community Foundation of Jackson Hole. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and the Teton County Search and Rescue volunteers by making a donation today. Visit www.tetoncountysar.org donate. An experienced athlete, Sally Franklin started skiing with her parents before she could even walk. On March 24, 2012, she and three friends headed for a steep couloir called Once Is Enough, south of the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort boundary. But when the 26-year-old dropped into the couloir, she took a life-altering tumble. Friends call her Superwoman Sally, not only for surviving that day, but for fighting her way through what's been a painstaking recovery. All right, my name is Will Smith. I'm a co-medical director for Teton County Search and Rescue and a team member now for almost 15 years. Also wear a couple of other hats in the Valley as medical director for Grand Teton National Park as well as one of the ER docs at the hospital here. I'm Jeff Brines. I am a financial analyst uh, living in Jackson, Wyoming and really like to play uh, in the mountains surrounding Jackson Hole. And my name is Sally Franklin. I moved up to Jackson Hole in 2012 for a job, um, a public relations job in the ski industry. We have a ski cabin in the mountains um, in Leadville, which is two and a half hours from Colorado Springs. So I grew up there, well, going to there. Um, and then my dad took me backcountry skiing in his backpack when I was six months old. I used to live in Boulder, Colorado, and I just needed a change, and Jackson Hole sounded like a great option. And when I was offered this job that was doing PR in the ski industry for major ski industry clients, I was excited to accept that job and move up here. We we skied a bunch together. When Sally first moved here, she was obviously just got into town probably a month prior and was excited to kind of check out everything Jackson had to offer. And uh, much like today, like, I, you know, I really like getting out and, um, you know, with friends and skiing around. And um, I do remember it was kind of a unique march in that there wasn't the kind of historic norm of big snowfall. But what we had in, you know, as, as a result was more of like a strong melt freeze cycle for many I would even say weeks leading up to um, that day. I remember everything leading up to that really well, really, really vividly. And um, like I said, one of the more unique parts about that that March was there was just a lack of snowfall. It just didn't happen. Like, you know, March can be feast or famine in that particular year. Uh, it was definitely famine. Um, and I remember 
actually thinking more toward uh, spring at that point, being like excited to get on my mountain bike again and go to the desert more than I was thinking about anything ski specific. So I think we were really just trying to make the most of what was around and what was around at that time was um, good corn skiing. So our, our thought was, you know, Hey, where, where can we get some good uh, kind of more adventurous corn skiing without really spending the entire, you know, dark approach in the park or anything crazy. And um, a bunch of friends earlier that week or maybe a week prior had skied the martini shoots uh, with great results. They had a lot of fun. So we were thinking that would be a fun place to go. And I don't know if we were on first box, but it was close to first box. So it was, it was actually really funny. I mean, uh, it just it, it's weird to get on a tram anytime during the weekend uh, in March and have nobody on that tram. <laughs> like it was just us because conditions were so bad um, at the resort in terms of like just being frozen. And um, I think, you know, spring break time maybe, and people maybe were staying out pretty late. So we were, we were, I think there might've been three or four other people on the tram up uh, and it was just us. And, you know, the, the goal is to get outside the boundary and, you know, start making our way toward the martini shoots. It was a party of four, so it was uh, obviously Sally, myself, uh, Patrick, and um, our buddy Jeff Bile. So it was four of us. And I have zero memory of the day itself, so I don't remember anything of that day, like waking up in the morning, like how Jeff, Jeff and Patrick and I met, how we got over to the resort, any of that, so... I lost all memory for about three months after my accident. So there's a number of different ways to get there, and it wasn't like really established which way we would go. Um, I, you know, obviously the way we ended up going is through once is enough, and uh, I skied that previously a few times, and I didn't think much of that line not in terms of not giving respect just it wasn't anything that drew there wasn't anything that drew me to it or didn't draw me to it it's just kind of a way to get a around cody peak once is enough is a is mostly a or predominantly an easterly facing line is visible throughout the valley and it's a a pretty steep couloir um with rock walls on both sides uh in it's one of the more famously shot jackson lines um, in terms of it, it looks like it has a lot of exposure and in a lot of ways it does. Um, but you access it through, you know, going out the gates. So it's not in the resort boundary. Uh, it is in the back country. Um, I hate the word side country, but a lot of people would call it that. And you, you hike, climb, whatever you want to call it, up Cody Peak to the, to the top and then kind of wrap around to get into the entrance. Um, some years you have to jump into it, um, being there's like a cornice feature, or kind of a rock wall. Some years that fills in and it's more of a ski-in. Uh, this particular year, it was a ski-in. You didn't have to jump or leave the ground uh, to get into the, um, the line. The objective, which was the, like I said, the martini shoots in a timely enough fashion that we weren't dealing with, you know, any sort of avalanche risk, being that we were, you know, in, in corn conditions and spring conditions. So um, with that said, there was very little uh, snow stability risk with respect to the line, and that was my big. That's always been my big concern with something like that. Um, so yeah, I don't mean to not give it respect. I just was thinking more in the 
snow exposure risk mindset than I was in the, you know, how consequential is the line. The first time I skied it, I watched the guy fall, I don't know, halfway down it maybe, and just tumble through it like any other, you know, shoot. Uh, and, and so I, having watched a good skier do that made me think, oh, you know, worst comes to worst, you just, you tumble to the bottom. You know, that, that was my, not to say that was a conscious thought, but that's kind of the, the way I saw that line. There's no mandatory airs in the middle. There's no rocks in the middle. There's nothing at the very bottom. So my, the way my brain worked is it was like, well, snow stability check. We're good there. Um, and then I didn't, my brain didn't compute, you know, it's a kind of off camber. That's something that most people don't see when they look at it is that the, it, it is obviously steep, pretty much a single fall line, but there is a slight double fall line to the skier's left-hand side toward the rock wall. I don't think anybody was excited to get out to the martinis. You know, that's kind of the hard part of spring skiing is trying to time the corn cycle. So any getting around prior to the snow being what you want is, is really the, the hard part. Because uh, obviously if you wait too long, you're in kind of a, uh, a wet slide type environment. So we really didn't want that. And it was kind of like, well, what can we ski to get out there? What's everybody feel comfortable with? Nothing's going to be great, but, it, you know, what, what's okay and I think we stopped at the top of Pucker Face and talked about that, decided, well, let's just go over and take a look at Warns is Enough and make a decision then. And we got over there, and I distinctly remember, like, asking everybody, you know, are you okay with this? What do you think? And everybody said, yeah, let's just do this. It seems like the quickest way out there, and it seems like our timing will be best with this. We verbally said, let's do it, and then um, I went first. You know, Embarrassingly enough or not, uh, I had a GoPro on and I still use them, but it, it was a good way to review what that was because one of the things that happens whenever there's an incident, I feel like, is the way you perceive it is maybe a little different than what it was. So I was actually thankful to be able to go back and look at that footage because I remembered it skiing pretty well. Um, it was a little firm in the shade and it was it was really edgeable and not to say soft in the sunny spots, but it was it was pretty good for considering how I'd skied that line in the past in a kind of melt-freeze cycle. It, it was, you never really know what it's going to feel like till you make that first turn. And I remember getting in and being, uh, saying something to the effect of like, whoa, okay, like that was scary, but this is good. And then making turns and having a lot of fun down through it. And I actually remembered having a lot of fun through the ski part of it and kind of being surprised at how good it really was. This is just like a steep, uh, chalky, just starting to corn up kind of run. Because we were going further, I didn't actually ski it to the very bottom. I skied it to the uh, no-name traverse and then paused there. And then I called up, or we didn't have radios, called up and said, okay, it's good. You know, whoever wants to go next, go. Um, And that's when Sally uh, dropped in. I I turned off my GoPro at that point, so I don't have any film Mm -hmm. recollection. And Memory's weird and that, you know, it's hard to remember what has become like almost a dream or fabrication and what is real. But what I remember is like seeing like a, a little bit of her as she came in and then like seeing a ski and it looked like she had kicked the ski quickly, but I couldn't tell how. It looked like she maybe fell backwards or, um, you know, and, and I've since asked Patrick and Jeff who are at the top, Jeff Bile, and they both were a pretty confused as to what, hap- what happened as well. It was not overly clear how she fell or anything like that, but she fell and, and my first instinct was like, oh, this is, that's a bump, that's gonna suck. Like, 
this is not good. But it wasn't like this is this is a big deal. It was more just like this might ruin our day. That was my first thought. Like she's going to be banged up in this fall. But you know that was that was as much as my brain originally kind of hiccuped. And then as she started kind of tumbling, I realized that she was it was going to be a much bigger deal, and she was headed toward the wall on the left side、um, at really rapid rate. So she fell to the very top, started tumbling all the way through, and then the very bottom. Kind of where it pinches down is where she ended up impacting the wall. It's hard for me to talk about, but it, I do remember her screaming、um, as she kind of started getting spun around, and I remember her. It had to be like the sound that she like that echoed kind of was was so tough to. I mean, that that's when I realized like it was like witnessing a car crash. So the speed had to be over forty miles an hour, but I don't know what you know. It's hard to say. When she hit, it was like there was obviously gear went everywhere, and I knew you know something had happened. Like I knew we had a real issue, and I I, re- I remember immediately yelling up to the other two guys like without hesitation, we need a helicopter. Like I didn't even I knew right away. I didn't even get over to her, and I knew we needed real help as fast as we could get it. I have zero memory of the day itself, so. I definitely don't know what happened. If I took a bad turn or my ski fell off or something, I just know that I fell and that was that. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about it and I've thought about it extensively, like forever. I mean, I, I, there's it's something I think about all the time, and I don't think there's any way to like to use objective thinking to figure out exactly what happened and why it happened. It, it just was. Yeah, it was a combination of bad luck and and、uh, you know、uh, the risk that was being taken kind of unknowingly. I mean, if there's a silver lining to it, like I had a lot of learning through this process. But the first thing I did was obviously yell, "We need a helicopter," which is kind of like yelling panic because that doesn't mean anything.、Um, and I, you know, told my ski partners up, up top, who I trust commonly with my life, "I need you down here." So Patrick. After seeing this happen, had the wherewithal to collect himself, drop in, ski down, and start helping me.、Um, and start and by helping me, I mean just figuring out a plan. Like, what do we do? So at that point, I skied over to her and assessed what had kind of gone on in my head. I'm obviously not a medical professional by any standard.、Um, for my own reasons, I'm fairly well versed in head injury, so I had a pretty strong feeling that that was a big part of the injury.、Um, I could tell there were other injuries. And I could, I, I knew that we had to obviously get her off the mountain, but we also had to make sure that we don't do anything to worsen the injury. So, at that point, Patrick was, if I remember right, he was skiing down with a cell phone in his hand. He was actually trying to call while he was skiing because、uh, we were trying to use every minute we had. And none of us had been in a search and rescue situation prior to this, so it, it was a new thing for all of us. And there's a lot of preconceived notions that I've since. Obviously, throwing out the window being a part of this. Yeah, I was working at a Teton Village Clinic where we work sometimes as physicians, and sometimes we have a, a mid-level like a PA or nurse practitioner sometimes working there with us. And so I was working that day. So usually we're not able to leave or leave the clinic for when uh, uh, calls like this came in. But this just happened to be a day with the、uh, moons aligned, and I was able to get the initial report when the search and rescue call out came, and one of the other.、Uh, 
uh, PAs that was working with us at the time, he was able to come in and relieve me in the clinic just based on the, the reports that we were getting initially on scene. Sound like it was a significant head injury, a critical patient. So uh, I was able to uh, go ahead and get out and respond out to the field and uh, go to the helicopter. There are sometimes some interventions that kind of as physicians or sometimes paramedics or nurses that we have on the team with that advanced life support that can do some additional care that uh, uh, EMT or a wilderness first responder might not be able to do. And it's sometimes not just the things we can do, but it's some of the advanced medical decision-making on and when you should do this, when you should do that. Because a lot of times the, the, the actual skills that you do out in the field aren't that different. Uh, you just need to get the person out. And there was actually a lot of time that passed between anybody showed up and and uh, the incident occurring. At that point, she was unconscious. Her breathing was really shallow. Um, her pulse was weak. I I did like some very basic stuff that you know because all I knew is the the more I did, the more liability I'm or the, you know the more risk I'm taking unnecessarily. So like her backpack strap was wrapped around her neck. I cut that off. Um, her helmet obviously was, it did its job. It blew up into like 40 pieces and was, was off, which was, I mean, it sounds bad, but that's actually what it's meant to do. And, and it did its thing. Um, so I was just trying to get her into a, make sure her airways were clear and make sure she was in a position that like she wasn't co further compromised. Like she wasn't going to just roll downhill further or something like that. So that's really what I was doing. But you know, the hardest part, for me at that point was a trying to stay in that moment because like y your brain quickly goes to like every what if possibility, like, especially I'm a guy that's never been in a situation quite like this. So all I'm thinking about is the what if. And then on top of that, I I'm trying to get advice from whoever I can. So we've got two cell phones and they're both on, uh, you know, on hold, if you will, with 911. One's 911 talking or search and rescue, if you will. And the other is actually with my uncle, who's a paramedic, and uh, or he, he was a paramedic. Um, and he actually felt it was better to get me in touch with a like head paramedic or lead paramedic. And, and that's kind of what we were doing is, is utilizing those expert type of opinions to kind of make the next call as things developed because things were changing as time went on. Yeah, it's always interesting to hear the other side because most of the time we're coming from the search and rescue standpoint. So we really don't hear the decision making that kind of went into the event and then the decision making that happens kind of as the event unfolds. And kind of what I'm hearing here is that you guys did an incredible job. I mean, a lot of times what I tell my kids, the number one rule when you're out there is don't freak out. And so it's basically staying calm, kind of processing through what you need to do. Sometimes in the Tetons, you've got cell service when you're up high, but then as soon as you drop down into some of these ravines, sometimes it's good to get a call out before you actually get down there just because you may not have cell service down there. We did have cell service. Uh, it was actually really good cell service. I thankfully had my phone completely charged the night before, which is something I'm really bad at doing, frankly, and I think it's one of the most dumb decisions I commonly repeat whenever I'm going in the mountains is like, you should always have a cell phone charged. Not to say you should rely on it, I don't think, but man, if, how silly would you, what if I felt if I did have a cell phone, it wasn't charged and well, we couldn't get in touch with anybody. We would have been in a really bad situation. I remember the backpack being like a problem. Um, not sure, you know, like that's the hard, hardest part is I, I watched the incident, the impact. I was the only guy that watched it. And like I said, I was fairly convinced 
I mean, it was pretty obvious there's a head injury, but I also suspected there might have been a back or neck injury. And I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm definitely not a doctor or anything close to it, but I, I know enough to know you don't move somebody if that's, if that's suspected. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of overemphasizing of spine injuries. I mean, certainly we don't want to downplay them, but looking at a lot of the, the more current research that's coming out is most of the injury is done at the time of the impact. And so whether or not it's a motor, motor vehicle crash or whether or not it's a, a ski injury, most of the forces cause the injury to uh, happen at the time of the event. So to not do things sometimes because of a possible spine injury, I think have sometimes led to some kind of problems. So certainly if you're in a dangerous situation, we, we teach that if you don't have to move them, put them in a kind of supportive position, kind of make sure that their airway can stay open. Sometimes that's actually rolling them onto their side. So secretions, blood, things like that can drain out of the airway so that they don't aspirate it or kind of breathe it into their lungs. Yeah, that was definitely a big concern. It was like she was not in a, I would say, stable, like, I'm not saying I was like she was teetering on the edge of continuing down the slope, but it was not like she like landed in a flat area by any means. So it was, you know, it was not like, and it wasn't like perfect snow. It was, it was weird spring snow that she's in. And, and I just think like a non-medically trained person in a situation like that, you don't know. It's, 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 it's hard to know how much force you can apply without causing further damage. It's hard to like, you have no feel like that's kind of what I'm trying to say. And then on top of that, there's an emotional component where you're like playing the what if game and you could spend your entire, um, you know, re- whatever you want to call it, like stabilization period or whatever, worrying and, and doing everything wrong because your brain goes elsewhere. And that was like a big wake up call for me is like, all I could do is whatever is in front of me. I can't worry about 30 seconds from now or 30 seconds prior. All I can do is whatever is best right now. And keeping my brain right there is something that I've since thought about a lot. And that's the one piece of advice I've given anybody that's ever asked, or maybe they didn't even ask, I'll just tell them, is like if there is anything that occurs in the backcountry or you're, you're on the scene first, like keep your brain right there, keep your mind right there, and because that's all you can do. Like it doesn't matter what will happen five minutes from now because, because you just need to make the best decision you can make right then. I don't really remember how we got the back. I remember cutting a backpack strap off. Or we had to get a backpack off because it was around her neck in a bad way. Uh, but I don't remember exactly how we did that. Um, I think since then, one thing I've realized is like every skier should carry like some basic multi-tool. Like, and one of those tools should be a knife in case you get hung up like that. And like being able to cut clothing off or cut something that's strangulating somebody in a bad situation, you need to be able to do that. And yeah, it was just like a matter of trying to keep everybody calm, trying to keep her warm, um, trying to keep her in a spot that is, is safe, and then waiting for experts to tell us what to do and not trying to be some sort of hero outside of that. The other big thing that I would really like the, not just community, but just anybody that plays in the mountains to know, is like, I think we lose sense of, of how, of ease or something. Like we lose sense of how remote these places are. And this is not relatively remote. Like, you can see people, you can see houses obviously from that spot and see the town of Jackson. And it still took two hours to get the helicopter there. And I'm not saying that's too long. Like they had to mobilize an entire team in a, in a, you know, magical flying thing and get it there. And all these, you know, it's not like they're standing on, on standby, just waiting to fly to the next thing. I understand why it, it took that long. And I'm amazed after understanding what it takes that it just, it didn't take longer. 
So it was two hours for the helicopter, and it was, I can't remember, somewhere between an hour and 90 minutes for the ski patroller, the first ski patroller to get over there. Um, it could have been less now that I'm thinking about it. I, I cannot remember now how long it took for ski patrol, but I know it was not like 15 minutes. It was definitely closer to an hour than it was not. And and that's something that I, I just, you know, I think about all the time now when I'm out there. It's like you don't, even if you're close, you're not close because it takes a long time for emergency personnel to um, get on scene. I have very vivid memories from when the incident, like everything till Ski Patrol got there. And once Ski Patrol got there, all I remember doing is, is packing down a landing zone for the helicopter. Like walking and walking and walking and walking and walking to try to get a uh, an easy place. So I don't. After ski patrols there, I'm I'm at that point my mind did go elsewhere and I wasn't present and it was into the what if game. But thankfully, all they wanted me to do was was stomp. So it was fine in a way. Wasn't up to you anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I remember uh, getting on scene. I think we landed just a little bit different from where you guys were actually packing down the hella spot, just based on the terrain. Um, sometimes packing down hella spots kind of like boiling water for kind of a, kind of a delivery at home. It's like just to do something. Um, but uh, packing a heli spot down does definitely help. If I remember getting out of the helicopter, and again, there's so many different things that are going on. You're managing the helicopter, the safety of that, the safety of the uh, the people around that, and then then beginning patient care. And again, a lot of times it's deciding how much should you do right then and right there versus just extract them to a more secure location to where you can do the more definitive thing. So um, like you had mentioned, Sally uh, was having some gurgling respirations, kind of the teeth were clenched. Uh, Again, one of the things that you sometimes see with significant head injuries and then was having what we call the corticate posturing, just kind of with the arms that are flexed. And so with all that going on, we tried to put in an oral airway just to help kind of keep that airway open. Um, Ski Patrol, kind of as they always do, uh, do an awesome job of packaging. So a lot of times when we get there, we're just basically just checking a couple last things and and trying to get them in that helicopter and really kind of get them to that definitive care, which is still three or four kind of phases uh, before they get to to the hospital. And so I uh, tried to do that, just kept some oxygen on. She was still breathing adequately. Um, not as ideal as we would like for a long-term situation, but I felt it was good enough for that few-minute helicopter ride to get her down to the valley floor, out to the ranch lot at the village where we normally interface with either the, the ground ambulance or with air ambulance. And so uh, really there was not a whole lot that I could do as a doctor right then and right there. I mean, if she wouldn't have been breathing or kind of adequately then we probably would have took some a few more steps up there on the mountain, but I felt at that point it was time just to get her down to the valley floor. When I was getting prepared for today to try and refresh my memory, I actually went back and looked at the timeline uh, as far as kind of on our records, and as best as kind of we could guess, the the accident happened about ten twenty in the morning. Uh, looks like the uh, uh, the the team was dispatched around ten twenty six, and so that's probably a little bit of time you're on hold and. There, there's a uh, search and rescue board that conferences in because, again, this isn't just kind of send an ambulance from point A to point B. There's a lot of uh, orchestration that needs to happen deciding can the helicopter fly. And that's, I think, a big thing is a lot of people hope and assume that helicopter can, but there's definitely limitations on when it can. So, um, like you said, some of these areas, even though you can see the valley floor, still take a considerable amount of time to get to. We got the first responders, which is ski patrol on scene, I think about 45 minutes after that call. And then uh, 
I was able to get to the patient about 30 minutes later. So um, on my records, I got to the scene about 11.45. So from the time of the injury at 10.20 uh, until we got on scene at 11.45, again, that's an hour and 25 minutes. So still quite remarkable. Um, Then just thinking about kind of weather and again, like in your decision of kind of what to do is, is if uh, the helicopter can fly, then there's multiple, multiple hours added on to a lot of these rescues. We are on scene with the helicopter for about uh, 10 or 11 minutes until we got the patient, uh, Sally, kind of uh, kind of loaded into the helicopter and then back down to the valley floor. Uh, we're there for about 30 minutes, and we had a helicopter from Idaho Falls uh, take the patient over there that's got the more advanced uh, trauma capability to care for the injuries that she had that day. One of the worst parts of that day was was watching a helicopter leave and then realizing I got to still ski to the bottom. Like, I still have to get off the mountain. Mm-hmm. And, like, I could barely move. I didn't even want to – I didn't even want to – because I don't, A, know the outcome um, at all. And I know it's probably, you know, at that point, um, the worst is going through your head over and over and over again. And I've got to get off this mountain. And it's like uh, – it's like – witnessing a terrible car accident and getting in your car and driving home or something. And it's like, it was the hardest thing to get down that mountain I have ever experienced. I was in the hospital for four and a half months and that involved two or three weeks in Idaho Falls. And then, um, my acquaintance on ski patrol is actually a, he works for flight for life, Colorado, or he did work. So he was able to get an air ambulance up to Idaho Falls Medical Center and then that flew me back to Colorado Springs. And I can't remember if I was taken directly to the where I had back surgery or I knew I was in the ICU so I don't know if that was before I had back surgery or after. Anyway, I had that there and then I was taken to the LTAC long-term acute care hospital, which is now transferred to another type of hospital setting. But so that was after I had my back surgery and then I was there for like three weeks. Then the doctor on the rehab floor back in the hospital where I was in the ICU came and saw me and he would say, hold up two fingers, and I held up two fingers, and he was like, okay, now she's ready for rehab. So that's when I, I don't know how much longer I was there, but I went back to the original hospital to go through rehab for like two and a half, three more months. I had a broken back, a broken neck, a broken right ankle, and I had a left side brain injury, so my whole right side was compromised. Um, I used to be right-handed, now I'm left-handed um, because of that left side brain injury. Um, I, my father has told me that in the Idaho Falls Medical Center, I had a collapsed lung and the hospital inquired of infection, so. I know all all of those things were kind of piling up <laughs> also in in addition to my injury. So I think it's just it's it like her recovery in every way has been remarkable and um like nothing short of 
fully inspirational because the grit and the courage it takes to like keep going the way she has is uh, something you can, I think anybody can look at and be like, whoa, that's impressive. And it really is right on down to like her continuing to ski, which is awesome. And ski better. (laughs) Right? Your mom told me. Yes, I am skiing better now. <laughs> but like, the the brain's a really tricky thing, and and like the you know it's it's it's, it's you just don't know. So I think there was so much uncertainty that I felt all the way through, um, and and just like I felt sad in a lot of ways because I felt like she. I knew she was going to have a long road ahead of her, which she did. And, and again, I don't think there's anybody I've ever met that could have gone down the road to, with as much poise as Sally has. So that's, that's where I'm trying to say it's nothing short of incredible. I heard that some people after head injury have complete, their memory from before the accident is completely erased. But I, that luckily did not happen to me. So I remember like, when I was in the uh, urgent care room when I was like six years old or something because I was biking with my dad and my brother and I like crashed or something and I I remember being in that specific that place I luckily have well not distinct but I have memory of that incident happening so I feel lucky in that way I do want to emphasize that a helmet saved my life, so everyone should wear a helmet when they ski. Sometimes I see people skiing on like a blue run or something without their helmet on or a helmet on. And no, you might not be skiing like treacherous terrain or there won't be something that happens. Well, you're not skiing something that would have a negative effect on you if you were not wearing a helmet. But you never know. Like, someone could hit you, or you could hit a tree, or something. So um, that's one of the main things that I've learned from this. And there have been a couple times in the past where I've skied, well, before my accident, not after, um, where I skied without a helmet. And it, like... I wasn't doing anything. I was just seeing like rumors on the front side, so it didn't really matter. But now I, my perspective is that it does matter. You should always wear one. Yeah, I think that's great. And as I was going back and looking through some of my things, I actually found the picture of your helmet from that day. Oh. It's got the the ear pads connected to the chin strap and then just pieces of the, the styrofoam or the material that's on the inside and then just a little bit of the shell that's in the outside but it's all kind of strung out and it's not even in one piece whoa that's like not even a helmet yeah so like jeff was saying uh, it's, it's the helmet shattered. is just shattered yeah yes. and so it, that's what they're designed to do is to to diffuse that impact and mm-hmm. so to make less kind of injury to the to the brain that's underneath and so yeah i think without that helmet that day probably would have not been a survivable <laughs> accident yes Wow, that's amazing. <laughs>